0: Welcome to Lexis, the podcast all about language and linguistics. I'm Lisa Casey. I'm Jackie Glantzner.
1: I'm Dan Clayton.
0: And I'm Jill Lavender.
1: Okay, so on this episode of Lexis, we have got a special edition where we're going to talk to various people who are presenters for the York English Language Toolkit, which is based at the University of York. And we're going to hear a little bit, first of all, from Sam Helmuth, who is the founder of the York English Language Toolkit, who's going to tell us a lot more about what it is, how it was set up. And then what we're going to do is interview separately three different presenters. We're going to be talking to Tamar Karen-Portnoy, George Bailey, and Claire Childs at various points. And they're going to be telling us a bit about what they're going to be presenting in the July CPD session, which we'll tell you more about. So welcome, Sam. Thanks very much for doing this.
2: Thanks for having us. We're very excited to finally be on Lexus, which we love.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. That's the, that's the, that's the p- pinnacle of this <laughs> <you>? <laughs> So tell us a bit about York English Language Toolkit. What is it?
2: It is, well, it, the thing you can find most easily is a website, but what it is is a set of case studies and teaching materials for teachers of English language A-level. And all of the case studies are based on our own research that we do at York. Yeah. We put them in the context of the wider research always. But the kind of USP, if we have one, is that we like to take an act- a specific piece of research, like a paper or a journal article, and uh, get the researcher together with the teachers. We try to meet you in the middle. And we tell you what we think is cool about our research and why it might be useful for teachers. We we spend a lot of time thinking about that because mm. we, we've had to learn a lot about English language level to do a bit of reverse engineering. The thing that actually happens once a year is we have a workshop where we actually meet teachers and you get to answer back and tell us what you think. Yeah. Our target audience is the teacher at 9 o'clock, 9pm 9 on a Sunday evening <laughs> who needs something they can quickly pick up and adapt and use on Monday morning if they need to.
1: Right. It should be
2: quick and easy to find your way around and use.
1: And most of us have been there.
2: And so have we. We understand.
1: (laughs) So when did you set it all up and what kind of events and resources have you offered as part of it?
2: So it started out as some quite small workshops The first one was in 2013, so we're in our 10th year. We might have a cake, you never know. It's not (laughs) our 10th workshop, because there was a little gap. There were a couple of years in the middle there that we didn't run them. And then I persuaded the department that we should keep going. Um, And and then it grew like topsy, really. So we had sort of two or three quite small workshops where we were finding our feet, understanding the spec for ourselves. And we really thanked some of those early teachers who came to those. They Mm. tended to be local, mainly in the sort of Yorkshire region, And they, we learned a huge amount from them. I won't name, check them, but they know who they are. And so we have this annual workshop that has grown and was always in person. You know, we have this little squirrel idea because one year a squirrel came in the room and ran around the room and teachers squeal when a squirrel comes in the room, it turns out not just students. And then of course, COVID meant that we and everybody else went online and that in hugely increased that audience by in, you know, threefold i mean massively loads of people especially the first year when everyone was at home yeah so we've run online for three years and then this year we we are going back to, we're going to a fully hybrid mode so that people can come to us quite a few people are bringing a team the whole teaching team is getting a day out and coming in a car and coming to york that we think is really great because you can discuss it together in your team yeah each. yeah a bit of sort of a real CPD day. Mm. and But it's also fully hybrid. People can drop in and out online and all the recordings of all the talks will be there afterwards to do it in, a, in asynchronously as well. Yeah. So mainly it's workshops and then the materials are all hosted online afterwards. So if you come to a workshop or if you watch one of our old ones online, you'll get a talk by the actual researcher, the person who did the research and wrote mm. the paper. So you, it's the horse's mouth, as it were. And you get to ask them questions, but then we prepared beforehand two sets of materials. So classroom materials that are kind of things that could work for a starter. Yeah. I call them lead-in. There's usually a choice; you can pick and choose what you want to use. And then we've got extension tasks. So those are aimed at if you if you want to just you just want to use this. You've got your core cool material you normally cover in your scheme of work, but you just want something new to slot in. Often those extension materials will fall into that gap. But we also know teachers who use them for like really keen students who want a bit of self-study material and have had a good experience of that or inspiration for an NEA or something like that.
1: And so what, what are some of the areas your presenters have covered in the past over the last 10 years then?
2: So we deliberately aim every year to try and cover as much of the spec as possible. Yeah. So we always have something that's about analysis of text or Spoken conversation, and then we will typically have something on child language acquisition. Yeah, usually something on language change, and then we have a lot of work in social linguistics in all its spheres. So language diversity, language attitudes, and then within that sort of analysis of text thing, we've had a couple of things which are quite suited to occupational language. And within each of those areas, we are sometimes a little bit specific. Because we're focusing on the stuff we do researching, yeah, of quickly. course, yeah. So on the child language acquisition, it tends to focus on much young, the little kids, where my colleagues, you know, tomorrow in a moment will tell you that's when all the stuff happens, you know, before the age of two. That's the this amazing explosion of development and growth happens in those first two years, that is often unseen and sort of unpacking some of that. Yeah. But we have quite a broad range, and. Uh, One of the things we're doing this year is bringing in an area of linguistics, forensic linguistics,
3: which
2: technically isn't on the spec, but we think the concepts in it are really well aligned to the spec. And we think it's something maybe that ought to be on the spec and that Mm -hmm. students will really enjoy and is also getting them to think about the skills they're gaining from careful and thoughtful study of language are really really good employability skills. These are going yes. to get you hired because you're thinking about language not just in a sort of arts way about the ideas and the intentional creativity, but you're also thinking about well, what are the nuts and bolts of that? What have they done? What have they actually done? You're so you can reverse and engineer. You can fix the car as well as drive it. Yeah, and that's a really good. That gives you a big range of careers that you can go into.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's something we. I mean, we've talked quite a lot before on previous podcast and with other English teachers about this is that you know clearly A-level numbers have been pretty bad for English Mm -hmm. across the board for the last 10 years for various reasons that's going to have an impact on universities can have an impact on English teaching numbers you know we want to encourage people to do English A-level particularly English language A-level because it's the best but also stuff like forensic linguistics is is fascinating isn't it when the real world kind of applications of that are just huge
2: Yeah. So the one this year is going to be about the extent to which people's attitudes towards a sampled speaker. So we're going to mm. show the results of a game gamified experiment that my colleagues, Carmen Lamas and Vince Hughes and others did, where they played, they they got people to do the basic legal speaker comparison yeah. uh, case where you list you have a recording from someone who is pretty definitely the criminal. It was recorded during the crime, like a threatening phone call or something like that. Yeah. And then you have a recording from the person who's being prosecuted, maybe from a police interview, and you have to say what's what's the likelihood that those two voices are definitely the same person. Mm. And there's certain things you can do, but there's also a bit of personal judgment in that. From you know, in in court, those recordings might be played. Yeah. So in the game, people are asked to judge them first, just on their own what they think, but then we ask them to judge when they're in a jury setting in the game mm-hmm. or if they've been given some expert witness advice about those recordings, about the content of them, the phonetics and that kind yes. of thing. Yeah, And we want to see the extent to which people's judgments change from what they actually heard based on what they what they think they're supposed to have heard. It's, it's about attitudes to the same voice, depending on the context you hear it in, and, and in a really high-stakes environment.
1: And as you say, you know, you, you mentioned before about kind of interesting topics for NEA language investigations and things like that. Some of the methodology like that's really interesting for students to look at and think, oh, could I use that for something for my language investigation? But equally, all your other presenters are doing stuff about their research, their methodologies. There's some great stuff in there, isn't there, for students? to Absolutely.
2: Be yeah. Our sort of byline is do try this at home. <laughs> because we, and we want to always you know there's always a little section on it. E- each case study has a single page and it's got a section on how to do it with methods and in lots of cases we've got you know little videos showing you how to do it so we've got one how to look stuff up on the bnc corpus or how to use google engrams all kinds of things and you can just use those in class play the video in class and get the students working on it straight away and yeah. then yeah. that would inspire them to then come up with their own questions to use those same tools to ask Um,
1: yeah brilliant so you've as you said you've been going for over 10 well 10 years this year isn't it so what have been some of your favorite sessions in that time this is this is always going to be risky isn't it because you might make yourself unpopular with somebody whose name you don't mention like Paul So this
2: is is, which which is your favorite child you know very very difficult to choose very difficult so i love them all and i do i think they're all very cool and there's something in all of them i think the ones I wanted to highlight were the ones I think that are uh, it's not obvious how cool they are. Right. But so the, the one that sprang to mind, this is funny, is, it's odd, it's called Passivisation by Genre. And I, I'm not sure that's the best title. I could have come up with something snappier. It's an analysis of the North-South divide in a grammatical feature in Middle English in different kinds of texts. So it's so cool because it is so much what you do in English language available. So it's about it's about you know in old 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 English you know they used to have man as a pronoun and of course we know that's back again in yes <laughs> in sort of black London English you know man done whatever so so but it was that was the pronoun and then they invented the passive so you could say it was done and you didn't say man has done it you could say mm-hmm. it was done and there was a north south divide in how quickly that came on. And so they've got two different translations of the same text in different monasteries in the North and the South, and they show that it's different. And it's so kind of other, and but it's so contemporary as well. Yeah. So The, the leading task we do from that is looking at a football commentary on TV versus radio. And of course, the... Everything about the description of the same football match, and we won't mention football this week. No. I was going to try not to. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but you know that you you know, that genre difference is is the bread and butter of what you're working with in the A level, and yet you can see it back in translations of text from, I think the, you know the 15th century, whenever it was. So that's what I love because I Mm. don't think people get how cool it is. And yeah, I think it's cool. I really like the ones that have got some conversation analysis in them because I think those are really accessible for students. I think it gives them a door into a very technical structured way of dealing with spoken texts that I think sometimes people don't know how to deal with. You need your structure to work with. So we've got one on courtroom language, one on the interaction that happens in phone-based therapy, and then just one on what happens when people ask questions and answers. The way people ask their question tells you what answer they expect to get. Yeah, so those are the other ones. But I I, I, I love them all. We have an index on the website where you can, it's sort of there, it's organized by the parts of the spec. It, we've organized it by the AQA spec, not because it's the only one available, but because it's probably the, the, the most common one. Um, and so it's organized there by the spec. So if you want inspiration, that would be a good place to look.
1: And all of those case studies are there still, aren't they? You've got a link to each one of them.
2: Everything's yeah, yeah everything. I think we're this will take world. us to. Thir- I think we'll be up to thirty this year. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot. And the early ones we don't have talk videos of the talks. Mm. But one thing we're doing this year is so this year's workshop is three new talks, but we're reviving one from the very first workshop. Oh, right. To revisit the research, what's happened. Oh, in interesting, finished. right. And also so that we end up with a, a video of it so that mm. it becomes a bit more user-friendly. So, yeah, and right. we might we might do that again, is sort of recycle some old ones and revisit the research a little bit.
1: Yeah, as long as you can recycle my leads flag for when we <laughs> get promoted again one day.
2: I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> Why do you think it's important for teachers and students to keep up to date with this kind of work?
2: You know, thinking about this, is I'm we're teachers too and I really understand the value of refreshing the content especially you've got you've got you do need some continuity from year to year in teaching a spec because you want you know what worked before you want to keep if it ain't broke but you also need to deliver it with some you know you don't want to sound bored because you've taught it before and you don't want to be bored and you probably wouldn't be bored because it's so wonderful anyway but I just know the value of having some new stuff to draw on and I was a TEFL, you know, foreign language English teacher
4: yeah.
2: in a former life. And I, you know, there's so many resources for that environment where you can literally pull it off the shelf and use it. Mm-hmm. So I was a little bit inspired by that in terms of how to prepare things. I, I think the value is that you're, you're seeing really new research. Everything we're showing you is hot off the press brand new. It's also really high quality because we've got, you know, behind the scenes, we don't really talk about it, but we've got a quality threshold that we put on. You know, we don't just show you stuff we found in a cupboard. We show you the good stuff. I think it also gives students a really good expectation of what they might encounter if they go on to study english mm. language and perhaps linguistics at university we're sort of we know that what we do is different from what is in english language a level because we're doing the linguistics of the english language yeah. but we we really see they overlap hugely and i think it allows some students to imagine themselves in a future where they do more of this and would they like to do that and i think yes, that's really, yeah. really powerful
1: yeah and as you say it's it's, it's great for teachers because it keeps refreshing the research and shows. It, I think it's really good at showing the links back to previous stuff as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And how something's progressed, where where we're coming from. You know, if you're revisiting something from ten years ago, as you say with with one of your presentations this year, it's a great way of saying, "Look, yeah. here's how our thinking moves on. Here's how methods change."
2: Yeah, and a new result. Someone else replicates the study and gets a different result. You know, yeah. we've got a whole case study on a study that they did, I think they did it about 10 times before they could replicate what someone else had found. And, right, yeah. you know, And it shows you that there is that scientific angle to these, these things that you can think about. And we, I think, embedded in all of our stuff is some really, we always identify for each case study a, a core concept that is, a, you know, like if it's a social, it could be a really basic concept that you, like accommodation or sequences in conversation something yeah. you know whatever it is that it gives teachers a a chance to just check their knowledge and refresh it and feel really confident I do I do get this I, I really do get this concept so I think the materials are useful for the keen enthusiasts who've been doing this for years but also we get loads of newly qualified teachers coming along to just sort of get you know who perhaps didn't study English language or linguistics and want mm. to hoover up a load of basic stuff. So although we're doing the research, we make sure we explain everything so so that you're getting a, essentially a sort of basic training in linguistics as well yeah. Yeah. in for the bargain.
1: Brilliant. Yeah. And could you just mention something about the MOOC as well? Are you still running that?
2: We have a MOOC. Yeah. So that's a massive online open course. So the toolkit is aimed at teachers. Yeah. The MOOC is for anybody. So you can just get students to take that on. And it's getting a refresh this year. So it launches every year in July. So I just think this see, I think it's 13th of July. We have a facilitated run. So we've got staff, Claire uh, Claire Childs is one of the people running it this year. And so you, you can, you know, it's a four week course, you work your way through and you can do it entirely independently at mm-hmm. any point in the year. But if you do it in that period, there'll be someone answering your questions in the, the chat, as it were. And it's basically okay.
1: sociolinguistics, language attitudes,
2: yeah, that kind it's,
1: of coverage, isn't it? It's
2: called An Introduction to Social Linguistics, yeah. Accents, Attitudes, and Identity. And it's getting a refresh this year with some new contents from Claire's new project that she's talking about this year. So, yeah,
1: I did it and it was brilliant. Even though I kind of thought, well, why am I doing this when I've been teaching this for 20 years? But I kind of did it and just thought, this is really interesting. It was great. Got loads of ideas from it. So it's fantastic.
2: that. It, it yeah. covers the basics, you know, the definition of standard language. basic methods, yeah. all kinds of stuff. So we're not, that's not just about our research, but some of the sort of showcase points mm. are about the, res- they're about the big research projects that we have done or are doing in our, yeah, in our, brilliant. our department. So.
1: That's great. No, thanks very much, Sam. That's great. So it's the actual event is on Monday, 10th of July, 10.30 to 4.30. That's right. That's at University of York, isn't it?
2: Yeah, we're not full yet on the in-person bit, or you can attend online, whichever you prefer. And And it's it's
1: EnglishLanguageToolkit.york.ac.uk slash workshops, isn't it? Yes. Okay, thanks very much, Sam. That's excellent.
2: Thanks so much.
1: So we just heard from Sam Helmuth about the sort of background to the York English Language Toolkit and we'll now go over to an interview with Tamar Karen who is one of the speakers and presenters, who will be doing a talk on what helps babies learn new words. So hi, Tamar, and thanks for joining us.
4: Hello. Pleasure. Hello. <laughs> so I'm Tamar Keren-Portnoy. I'm a professor at the Department of Language and Linguistic Science at York. And my area of research is how babies move from not knowing any language to knowing some language. So I mm. study very young babies. I'm mostly interested in babies as active learners rather than as absorbers of information from outside. But in order to understand what, how they learn, I both look at what they, how they help themselves, how their babble, for instance, helps them get into word learning. But I also look at how adults speak to them and what they get out of that. Mm. With a caveat that I'm not asking how adults teach babies language, because when adults talk to babies, they are not probably thinking about teaching them language at all. They're Mm -hmm. interacting with them. They're communicating with them. They're being with them. So the question is, how does this situation in which you also get to hear things, what does that teach you as a baby?
0: And this fits in with lots of research that you've done already, doesn't it? How how does it fit in with research that you've done in the past?
4: So we've looked at, as I said, both babies as pushing their own boundaries or advancing their own knowledge. So in those cases, we mostly recorded babies in naturalistic interaction in the home. But we also bring babies to the lab and test them to see what it is that they remember and learn from what they hear in others' speech to them. And and one thing that really puzzled us, actually, was we attempted to see how well babies can pick out words from running speech, which is supposed to be something really easy. Everyone talks about it. It's supposed to be something babies do all the time. We couldn't get them to do it.
0: Oh, and interesting.
4: It's very interesting. And actually, <laughs> we have a joint paper with Plymouth Baby Lab because they also couldn't get babies to do it. Mm. And we tried, we have 14 joint experiments that we ran with them where babies only managed to pick out the words from running speech in one out of the 14 experiments what's wrong with (laughs) (laughs) them? i think nothing is wrong with them i think something is wrong with the way we generally test babies in that we test them in such ideal situations that they show us that they can do something which they Probably in general can't or don't do. So what science needs to think about is: Do you want to test the ideal baby in the ideal situation that then teaches you almost nothing about real babies in real in the real world? Mm. Yeah. Or do you want to test babies in less ideal situations and actually find out what they can do without that much help or that much silence around them or so many repetitions and so on?
1: Or do oh. you just want to be known, jomsky and think about sort of big ideas and not actually <laughs> gather any data at all? <laughs>
4: Yes, no I don't.
0: <laughs> My students are always mesmerized by the idea that there are real people somewhere taking babies to labs and running experiments on their language. I think they I think they've got notions of sort of electrical wires coming out of, you know, helmets and caps and, and all sorts of crazy sort of images. Can, yes. you, can you tell us how your methodology actually runs when you run yes. something like this?
4: Yes, I can tell you that my daughter's friends also thought I'd, put a, <laughs> I'd open up babies' bellies with knives and stuff, <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> so what we, what we do is we bring the babies to the lab and the most sort of classical, simplest experiment is one where we have them listen to two different things of two different types. And we measure how much they attend to thing one versus to thing two. And attending in this sense is, it's odd because we're measuring how long they look to a sound source. But it's basically when we are interested in something, attending to it, when we're focused on something, we just Mm -hmm. tend to look in the direction of that thing. So that's what we're measuring. Eye tracking. Eye tracking. In a really basic, mostly without even an eye tracker with a human being saying Mm. they are looking or they are not looking. That's the old fashioned way of doing it. Nowadays, you can sometimes do it with an eye tracker. But humans are very good at judging if a baby is looking in a direction or not. Probably better than eye trackers. They're more expensive, but better.
1: And what does that reveal then?
4: So at the very least, it tells you if they can, if they probably distinguish between the two kinds of things. Mm. So if they look a lot to type one and look very little to type two probably for them, these are indeed two types of things, one of which is more interesting than the other. And if you have a reason to think why one of them should be more interesting than the other, then you can learn something about their learning. For instance, if one of them is familiar to them and one of them is new, then you can say, oh, they've listened to the new stuff because the familiar is already boring. Oh, or they listened to the familiar stuff. Could that grabs their attention because they recognize it and the new stuff just goes by them as noise. Mm. So that's the very sort of most basic thing you can tell about their learning but it tells you something if you know why you're comparing these two things to each other.
1: I suppose you're doing that because you can't say to the child tell me about the processes that you're going through because <laughs> they can't speak, they wouldn't understand.
4: No. They can't speak. How old were they in in your particular study? In this study I think they were 11 months old and mm. we tend to test babies you can test them from, I don't know, some, some labs test four and a half month olds, yeah. but, but these are pre, pre-speaking babies and even speaking babies are very hard to test because they don't sign the consent form. They're not, mm-hmm. they didn't choose to come to the lab and do these boring things. <laughs> Either they want to do them or they don't, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: So were there two things that you were giving them specifically for this study? And if so, what were the two things?
4: <laughs> when they came to the lab, we had them listen to the words they heard in the book in one context. Or words they've never heard before and the question was will they show a difference in looking time which then tells us that they recognize the words from the book so these books had become familiar or not and we played with the kinds of words and the kind of exposure that they had to these words in the book to see which books they do remember which books they don't remember
0: and was it their parents speaking to them in the lab as well or no only no at home?
4: Mm. no so they had to generalize from the parents voice to a new mm. voice and and generalize from something that happened in their daily lives and was sort of part of their routine take that and generalize it to a new situation that was very different in with a disembodied voice coming out of a black wall
1: so just thinking about the you know your your presentation that you're going to be doing in july what would you say are three really of the most important kind of takeaway findings from it that you think would be useful for a level students to to understand
4: so i think the first thing is that language learning is really difficult You know, people tend to say babies learn so quickly. Well, it depends, you know, how we decide what quickly is, but Mm. it takes them a whole year to even start saying a single, you know, single words. That's a pretty long time. If you think about, you know, Mm. for going from zero to one, they have an entire year and all they can do at the end of that year is say individual words. So it's difficult. It's also gradual. They don't start and immediately become proficient and experts. And the third thing I think that's important is that when we test what babies learn or what babies know, we need to test the babies. We can't just think what makes sense. What would be a good way of designing a baby or designing a world? (laughs) That is not the question. We want to know what babies actually can do. And that would, I think, parallel the fact that when you are teaching in a school, you can't say if if a textbook is a good textbook just based on looking at the textbook and thinking that it's great you know the ideas in the textbook aren't enough if you don't then see if the students in the school actually got these ideas understand Mm. these ideas you know took them up so it's the same with babies it's not a question about logic common sense it's a question about facts and evidence collection
1: so with with this kind of research that you're doing where do you think that kind of fits into that sort of idea of nature nurture? I guess not nature v nurture, but nature and nurture as influences. where Where do you think that's this kind of sits?
4: So my take on this question is that nature comes in in the fact that we have a certain structure of brain cells, you know a certain network that's already in our brain when we are born or even before we're born in mm. when we're in the womb. And learning starts when you're in the womb, because you can hear during the third trimester of the pregnancy. But the brain is changed by the information that it is processing. So as information is, comes into the brain, that creates the structures, it creates the networks in the brain. Yeah. So right from the beginning, before you're even born, nature and nurture are in interaction because you have the sort of starting point of the structure or the equipment <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Being changed as it starts to do things in the world, part Mm -hmm. some of which are to absorb information from outside, some of which will be creating behavior from inside or acting. Mm. So my take on, you know, whether language information, language knowledge, language structures are built in us, I think they are not at all. Everything is learned. But we are very good at learning. We are creatures that are excellent at pattern recognition. Yeah. We remember things, we organize things, and we generalize things and analogize. And you put all these together, and you get a machine that is very good at learning language. But I think it learns from zero. It's it's not a clean slate in the sense that it has a, a starting you know a starting structure from then on. You know, everything is learned, basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Pretty
4: That's a great answer. It's very clear. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> right. So we're going to move on now to talk to George Bailey, who's going to be doing a presentation at the york english language toolkit on mapping dialect change from the our dialect survey so hi george thanks for joining us hi thanks for having me do you want to tell us a little bit more about this talk you're going to be doing and the research it's based on
3: yeah so it's some recent research that i've been doing on variation and change in the dialects of english spoken all across the uk it's an ongoing project so i'm kind of leading the project at the moment and we've worked alongside dr laurel mckenzie who's at new york university as well as Dr. Danielle Turton at Lancaster. So the Our Dialects Project is essentially like this huge dialect survey that's been ongoing for many years now, I think since 2013. And we've got responses from over like 15,000 members of the public all across the UK, in the very top of Scotland. I think we have some from the Shetlands as well, all the way down to the, the, the very southern point of England. And essentially, yeah, we're just interested in producing a An updated dialect atlas of the UK. So, plotting all of the interesting variants that people use, you know, interesting dialectal words, pronunciations, grammatical constructions as well. And just, yeah, painting a picture of, you know, contemporary UK dialects and Mm -hmm. producing this kind of atlas that can, I guess, form the basis of any future linguistic research as well.
0: And are you a dialectologist? Is this is this basically your your research bag? How does this fit in with the sort of research that you've done up until now?
3: Yeah, I I would describe myself as a dialectologist. I have many hats. So I'm a, I'm a dialectologist, I'm a I'm a sociolinguist. I do a lot of work in phonetics and phonology as well. So I mean, essentially all my research is guided by the same kind of underlying question, which is, you know, how and why we all speak differently. How does language change over time? What are the kind of factors that, you know, can motivate and influence language change? And there's a social aspect to that, you know, thinking about how we are as as members of a community and and the social factors that that can influence how we speak. But there's also a more kind of linguistic internal aspect to that as well, which I'm also interested in, you know, but how is language represented? How is it stored cognitively? How is it processed when we speak? And what kind of constraints that has then for how language can change? So yeah, I do all kind of work in that area. I do a lot of work in articulatory phonetics, so using things like ultrasound to actually track the movements of the tongue um, when we actually speak. So I kind of do a lot of zoomed in work on particular dialect features, communities in the North. And then for this work that I'll be presenting at the the workshop, it's kind of zoomed out. You know, it's a lot more, okay, let's take a look at the whole of the UK, Mm. lots of different dialect features, and just get an idea of, of how things have changed.
0: So what was the methodology this time around then? How did you kind of collect data and analyze data? And what was the data given that given that, you know, dialect covers so many different aspects?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, it started off as a well, it, it's always been a survey, a dialect survey. And it started off as a as, as a physical printout, believe it or not. So we would get it was an undergraduate assignment. So students would go off with this printed out survey, they'd hand it out to friends and family, asking lots of different questions about what words they use you know to refer to different objects so there'll be a picture of a a bread roll everyone's famous favorite <laughs> example and it you know, ask the question okay what what do you call this is it a is it a roll is it a cob a muffin a tea cake a batch there's a, there's a very long list of words people use for this and then there's all other questions asking about pronunciation so there's I mean, that's really the main focus of my particular kind of research. I'm really interested in, the, you know, the way we pronounce things. And we had quite a clever method for that. So rather than doing what people normally do, which is we record speakers, you know, we analyze the acoustics of the voice, we actually came up with kind of rhyming or homophone pairs. So we'd ask people, like, do the words gas and glass rhyme for you? Now, as you can hear for me, they do gas, glass. For many people, they don't. You know, it's more glass instead. Try to put on my, my best <laughs> impression there. <laughs> so we've come up with words, or pairs of words like that. Other examples, like, do the words eight and eight rhyme for you? As in the number eight, mm-hmm. and then the past tense of eat. Mm-hmm. And again, they rhyme for me. Other people, they don't. They'll say eight and eight instead. So the idea of those questions is that the real advantage, yeah, you know, we can get at the underlying system of contrasts in someone's linguistic grammar you know but what vowel categories do they have so it's kind of focusing on what we call mergers and splits so Mm. historical changes where you know one sound category has essentially split into two over time or maybe two previously distinct sounds have merged into one so we kind of focus on those for the survey Um, and then we also have grammatical things as well so you know could you say something like give it me Versus, give me it or give it to me, and things like that.
1: Yeah, are they a little bit like the the, the sort of rhyming ones? Are they a little bit like those John Wells lexical sets?
3: Yeah, essentially, yeah. So, like with with, with the gas and glass one, you know, we're getting at the kind of the, the trap bath split there. Yeah, yeah, So it's just kind of coming up with with interesting pairs of words that can mm. tell us something about you know how someone speaks and what system of contrasts they have in their dialect.
5: And have you been able to look at patterns across time then, whether, you know, whether our our accents are shifting? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about Northern accents becoming more kind of homogenous. Were you able to look at things like that?
3: Yeah, that was a big focus of the work. So there was a very famous, very large survey during the 1950s, the Survey of English Dialects. And the methods were, you know, broadly similar. It's still a survey. The demographics were quite different back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't quite as, as representative of the whole population. They were focused on 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 older male speakers who were quite, mm-hmm. you know, not as geographically mobile as people are now. Is that, dollars, know, it? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, yeah, uh, old white male farmers. Um it's <laughs> quite different from the demographics that we're looking at here, which is yeah. more balanced. But yeah, we we compare our results to those from the fifties just to see how things have changed. And they have. <laughs> Dialects are always changing. We kind of it, it, it's a mixed bag, really. I mean, you make the point about you know this idea of northern dialects all starting to sound the same. Mm. We do find some examples of that. So there are some features which are kind of on the way out. Mm-hmm. Kind of localized dialect forms for people who say things like "book" and "cook" instead of "book" and "cook." That's sadly on the decrease around kind of Lancashire, and Merseyside, and Stoke. Previously, you know, it's quite frequent in areas like that. It's it's just there. It's kind of clinging on slightly for life. But it's really quite rare now compared to what it was like in the 50s. But I'd say on the whole, that's not like the whole picture. Mm -hmm. It's not just all these northern dialects starting to sound the same, which, you know, people often talk about. Many of them are very stable. We see some examples of what might be called non-standard forms actually increasing um, Mm -hmm. and spreading. So it's not just a kind of one-way street where, you know, we're all going to just sound the same in 50 years' time.
5: Glad to hear it.
3: Yeah.
5: <laughs> so, George, uh, what what do you think are three important takeaway findings that you think might be interesting for A level students or teachers?
3: I'd say the first is that dialects are always changing. I mean, I kind of mentioned that earlier, but they they never stand still. You know, even things where there's certain features that have been described as like remarkably stable. Hmm. So, one example is the where you draw that north south divide for people who say like. Okay bus instead of bus mm-hmm. that's been described as like really really stable over the years but actually we find that it has crept northwards that that, that southern pronunciation has been spreading okay. so you know that kind of north south dividing line seems to be moving slightly to how um, how
5: far
0: up have we got then
3: it, it's kind of somewhere he wants mid-line. to know
0: just how under threat she is <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: it, it's, it's getting there it's moving up into the Midlands. i mean the midlands right. is a really interesting place to look because people mm. have to talk about you know, North-South divide as if the mm-hmm. Middle East just doesn't exist. <laughs> um. So, yeah, there's lots of interesting things going on there. But, you know, that's interesting in and of itself. It, but it, it speaks to a bigger point about, you know, language change being never-ending, mm. you know, inevitable, unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a good thing. It's something we should uh, celebrate and embrace. And then, yeah, I guess the, the, another... Interesting point is, like we mentioned earlier, about dialect leveling. You know, this concern that we're all starting to, to speak the same. And I, I wouldn't say it's unfounded, but uh, yeah, there's plenty of evidence on on the contrary where things are, are very stable. And that feature I mentioned, the 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 book cook pronunciation, yeah, it's it's on its way out in in Lancashire and Stoke and Merseyside, parts of the northwest. But it's it's very much still there in the northeast. I mean Scotland, it is not moving. It's very, very stable. Mm-hmm. So there's loads of examples where, you know, dialects are, are quite stable. I mean, they, they form a huge part of our identity. You know, it's not something that people are going to just get rid of overnight. And what's really interesting, actually, is looking at border locations, which is something I'll talk about in, in the workshop itself. Mm. These communities that lie either side of a border, you know, mm. England-Scotland, England-Wales, yeah. you know, Liverpool-Manchester, mm. they're really interesting because... People have a very heightened sense of of identity and place, and mm-hmm. you get really cool kind of behaviors linguistically um, when we look at those people. Was that two? Oh, I, I can't remember. Two, well, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah.
5: You can still.
3: One thing I would actually like to say is it's not so much a, a result from from the study itself, but more just a kind of a, a meta comment of how it's a great example of how linguistic research can be kind of integrated into teaching. I mean, I actually started off on this project I was one of the students who was handing out the survey mm-hmm. and then I kind of became involved in in the in the research side of it you know I kind of joined the project and made the website and all this and it's kind of taken on a life of its own since then but it's a really nice example of how you know research can be done by students like in the classroom and for me that was something that really kind of I guess started my, my passion for linguistics you know actually Not just learning things, but doing it yourself, collecting data, analyzing it. And yeah, you know, the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't kind of started off, you know, doing this assignment in class 10 years ago now.
5: And if if students want to contribute to, you know, to your your data set, is there a way for them to do that?
3: Yeah. So we've got a kind of public facing website, which was really the start of the project. You know, Mm -hmm. the research I'll be talking about at the workshop is a more recent thing. For many years, it was just this website, which you can go on to. It's ourdialects.uk. It's got all of the interactive dialect maps. You can kind of click around them and explore kind of cool patterns. And the survey is on the website as well. So, mm, yeah, feel free to take it. All data is good data. You know, we're, we're adding to the maps every year. So, yeah, it's it's great to have kind of representative sample from everyone across the UK. And
1: so it's part of your presentation at the York Day. Are going to be sort of showing teachers some sort of resources based on it and, you know, where they can take it with their own students?
3: Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, it's something that can be replicated very easily. You mm-hmm. know, students can go and do their own surveys, think of their own questions. You know, like what, what dialect features do you think are kind of interesting and relevant for where you're from? So we'll have some kind of teaching resources for students doing their own surveys. And, and thinking about other questions you know like about identity and and, and borders and you know where would you draw the north south divide if you're given yeah. a blank map kind uh, of <laughs> interesting and fun things like that
1: yeah I do think some students would need a geography lesson first <laughs>
3: <laughs> maybe, maybe not a
1: fully blank map then
0: yeah
1: <laughs> Put some labels on no cheers George that's great
0: lovely thank you
1: Right, so we just heard from George Bailey, who's a lecturer at University of York, and we're now going to talk to Claire Childs, who's a senior lecturer in linguistics, and is going to be talking on perception of non-standard regional grammar. So, hi, Claire. Thank you for joining us.
6: Hi, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, Claire. So we were
5: wondering whether you could just uh, let us know a little bit about what your presentation is going to be about and the main areas that you're going to be focusing on.
6: Yeah, so I'll be presenting on some findings of an ongoing project that I'm doing that's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And the project is called Interactions in Grammatical Systems, North-South Dialect Variation in England. So it's all about grammatical variation in dialects of English as spoken in England, focusing on, I'd say, two main questions. So one is whether there's any sort of North-South patterning of particular grammatical features within England much like, we have north south distinguishers, if you like, for accents. So, like, Bath, I say Bath, when I'm from the north of England. But if those of you from the south might say Bath, that's a very well known divider, if you like, between north mm-hmm. and south. But is there anything grammatical that could be seen as the same as another north south distinction? Or is it that actually it's a lot more subtle than that, grammatical wise? So that's one question. And also within North South, I'm talking about it as a continuum. So Midlands is included in that as well, obviously. So that's one main aspect. And the second aspect is looking at how different grammatical features cluster together. So rather than looking at them all as separate things, whether things co-occur in certain Mm -hmm. dialects and within the same sentence even, and if so, what does that tell us about relationships between those different features? So in the presentation, uh, the CPD day, I'm going to be talking about people's perception of non-standard and some standard grammatical features of English, both in isolation, when they're the only non-standard thing in the sentence, or mm-hmm. together with other things, and how that might affect their judgments. So it's it's a survey when they, they're asked to, to rate these things, but To give you just an example, so something like ain't, which is a very non-standard stigmatized feature, it can occur on its own in something like, you know, I ain't been there or something like that. You also get, say, another stigmatized construction like negative concord or multiple negation. It's sometimes called Mm. things like I didn't see nobody, meaning I didn't see anybody so separately they're very stigmatized in the sort of wider population if you like they they're also both actually said to be more common in the south of england when people have done research in the language use but you can obviously get the two things together so you could have something like i and see nobody and so my key question is whether those kinds of co-occurrence of of non-standard features are kind of deemed more or less acceptable, and whether the context in which things are presented actually can affect people's attitudes towards them. And so that that's the main question, I guess, that I'll be focusing on. And and
0: how does this fit in with work that you've done in the past? Is this is this a
6: development of stuff you've already done? Is this striking out in a new direction for you? Yeah, it kind of builds on some work I've done before. So my PhD was on variation in English negation. So I've worked on negative negative code before and some other negative features. So things like tag questions, like negative tag questions, like isn't it, in it, you know, the different Mm. variation you get there. So it kind of stems from an interest just generally in grammatical variation in dialects of English, but especially comparative work so I've done a lot of work across different dialects because I think that kind of gives you more insight into how widespread certain features are because if you just focus on one dialect you think oh this is maybe specific to this one Mm -hmm. dialect and then by branching out you actually see oh no actually all these this whole set of dialects use this same feature but maybe not in the same way and so I'm very keen I've been very keen to look at both the sort of sociolinguistic elements, like, you know, how does it pattern by age, obviously mm. region, but also the the sort of more grammatical aspects of it. So like how other elements in the sentence affect it and the different rules that are part of different dialects and how those might be the same or, or different. So it kind of builds on that and and using sociolinguistic Methods, like you know, like we use a lot of quantitative methods, but using different methodologies. So the 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 talk I'll be giving is about um survey data, but in the past of, and and as part of the current project as well, we also have a strand that interview data, and so I think combining the two is quite nice because you you can then see how people's perception of these things then maps onto what they actually do. In mm. speech, and whether that's the same or different. I was going to ask about methods, actually.
0: So you had some quantitative methods and some interview data. Can can I ask what the quantitative sort of methods were, and, and what did you do with your data when you had it? If you wanted to sort of merge the two.
6: Yeah. So so we we the two main data sets on the project are interviews ca- carried out over Zoom, and then uh, survey data. And so the the interview data. Then we have to kind of extract the the sort of language features of interest from the interviews into Excel and kind of code it for different factors or in a big Excel sheet. And then once we have that whole spreadsheet, that can then we can do sort of stats with that. So this. In the field, we tend to use things like mixed effects modeling. So it's, it's like a type of, we call it regression modeling. So you can put the the data in and, and look at basically the effect of different factors on the main variable of interest. So, you know, something like say, let's, if we were just looking at Aint, we can say, okay, I'm interested in whether Aint is used or not in the interviews and then the factors that affect it might be things like, you know, the subject type or, you know, obviously the dialect, people's age, education level, things like that. So we can, we can run stats on that. And it's much the same with the survey data. There's just a different type of modeling that we can do that can handle It's In my case, it's, it's mainly Likert scale data. So on a, you know, on a scale of one to five and we can measure that and, and yeah, see the effects of different factors on, on what we're measuring. Yeah. So was, it, was it a case that you sent
0: out the survey broadly and then selected participants for follow-up interviews or were the
6: interviews separate to people who'd filled in the survey? So the, the way it worked was the, this survey that I'll be presenting on was it, we actually recruited people to do interviews first and then mm. they were sent this, this survey So the people come from four places in the UK, which were chosen for their North South distribution. So the places are Newcastle, Leeds, Nottingham and Southampton. So that they have an, they're on a North South continuum and each of them are quite distinctive in terms of dialect areas as well. And so the participants, they were from one of those four places, different ages. They all were asked, like, do you, you know, how do you identify class wise? And, and we were looking for people who identified as working class. And they did an interview over Zoom and then they, all, they then got sent this survey. And then the survey basically asks them, you know, you've got a series of sentences mm. that they're asked to judge and they're asked different questions about them. So the, the, the three main questions one is, would you use this yourself in speech, this sentence type? how frequently would you hear it in your hometown or local area and then how acceptable or correct in in quotes do you think this is and so the the latter two questions are on this liquid scale of one to five and then mm-hmm. so we can compare the difference between those different ratings and then across the different dialects mm-hmm. and then the plan is eventually to then compare that with the production data from the interviews but that's not quite a this stage just yet, but that, that will be in the works later on.
1: So given the stuff you've done it so far, what do you think are some of the sort of most important kind of takeaway findings that you think might be most relevant for A-level students?
6: Yeah, so I think one of the main take-homes is the results suggest that speakers of different dialects can perceive the same grammatical features differently depending on the context in which they're presented. So there was a case, for instance, that speakers from Nottingham on the whole found that ain't is more acceptable with negative concord than without, which is quite interesting. And the other is it didn't pattern in the same way. I guess that leads on to my second take-home point, which would be, I would say, that the fact that more, well, if you have two non-standard features co-occurring, it doesn't necessarily make, people judge the sentence any worse. So it doesn't necessarily decrease acceptability, but it can actually increase it as as we see in in that kind of case. Whereas in other cases like in Newcastle with Aint and Negative Concord, when asked, you know, how acceptable do you find this? They've found them really quite low on acceptability. They didn't like them very much. (laughs) And so if you combine... The two in the same sentence, it actually made no difference. It's just mm-hmm. the same because they have already had quite a low rating, right. so it just mm-hmm. didn't make it any worse. Mm-hmm. It's just the same. So, so that that's kind of interesting. I think methodologically, in terms of like how we present our sort of whatever we want participants to respond to, obviously the mm-hmm. context make, can make a difference to how they're judging you know this one aspect that we're interested in and then generally I think I found it interesting that the patterns that I found in how people perceive these features and I was mainly focusing on negation features and also agreement so things like he were instead of he was and Mm -hmm. and and, you know vice versa with a non-standard was instead of were they corresponded quite well with some existing patterns that had been found in uh, actual language usage so it seems that people generally at least in my data were quite perceptive of language around them and were kind of attuned to the patterns of use that have been previously identified so I mentioned earlier that negative concordant ain't was or said to be more common in the south of England and sure enough I found that the It was the two more southern communities, I mean, not not in was Midlands, obviously, but Midlands mm. and Southampton, they actually did perceive those two features as being more common than right. the than Newcastle and the Leeds yeah. people did. So it seemed to map on pretty well to what I've been found for production data
1: i'm intrigued by the southampton thing i know i know you're from the northeast, so you're pretty more interested in the newcastle stuff but so, yeah. i don't think i've heard anything much about southampton apart from sort of living near there as a teenager and people describing it as a cockney farmer accent <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah it's interesting because we when we uh, so a uh, research associate on the project beth cole she she was doing the, the interview aspect of the of the project and when I listen back to the recordings, there's some different attitudes with people. You know, people saying they identify as Southwest or some mm. identify as Southeast, and there may be an age dimension in that as well. With the younger people, you know, identifying differently than the, the older. So yeah. I'll need to dive into that some more. But there's definitely something to tap into there because I've, I've, I mean, things like accent features, like there was some some roticity so the kind of southwest R was cropping up in like particularly the oldest speakers so yeah I think it's it's obviously it's a dialect and accent that's quite you know far from where I grew up and I don't didn't know a lot about it before coming into the project but it was it's I think it's an understudied area in general and so there's definitely lots of interesting data that I'd like to look at there.
4: Mm,
1: Great. Cheers Claire, that's great, thank you. No problem. That's it from all our York English language toolkit interviewees, so thanks very much to all of them for joining us and a reminder that you can find the website address in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.